This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And that's how you protect and preserve institutions, by saying this is right, this is wrong, and no one is above the law. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. And this is the Weekly Roundup where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's incredible panel, returning to the roundup, he almost needs no introduction, senior advisor at the California Latino Economic Institute, my fellow co-founder of the Lincoln Project. He also lectures on race, class, and partisanship at USC. The one and only Mike Madrid. Mike, it's great to see you again uh, live in studio. It's great to be with you guys. I'm looking forward to today's show. Also joining us is Anthony York. Anthony is currently California Governor Gavin Newsom, Senior Communications Advisor. Before that, he covered California and national politics for more than two decades for the Los Angeles Times and Salon.com. Anthony, welcome back to Politicology. Is it back? Well, good to be here. (laughs) (laughs) On this week's roundup, up first, we're going to discuss the historic indictment of Donald Trump, how the prosecution could fuel this campaign, and how this all impacts the 2024 race. Then we'll discuss the new wave of cyber warfare and how it could shape our politics. Finally, exclusively for our Politicology Plus subscribers, we're going to discuss California Governor Gavin Newsom's plan to combat rising authoritarianism in red states. To get ad-free access to the show, plus a catalog of additional episodes like the Politicology Plus conversation we're going to have today, click the link in our show notes for politicology.com slash plus or navigate to the Politicology Show in the Apple Podcast app and tap the button there that says, try free. We'll dive in right after this. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Okay, it has finally happened. On Tuesday, Donald Trump was arraigned in New York City after being indicted on 34 counts of falsifying business records in the first degree, which is a class E felony. The allegation in the indictment is that Trump falsified these business records, quote, with intent to defraud and intent to commit another crime and aid and conceal the commission thereof, end quote. This language is crucial to charging falsifying business records as a felony in New York State. Simply falsifying the records is only a misdemeanor. In order for it to be a felony, prosecutors have to show that the defendant falsified the records in order to commit aid or conceal a second crime. The indictment does not lay out what the second crime would be, but the Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg did outline a statement of facts with the indictment that alleges Trump had orchestrated a scheme to violate election laws and to mischaracterize the payments for tax purposes. But in order to secure a conviction, the prosecutors are going to need to prove 
that there was an intent to commit or conceal a second crime. They don't actually need to charge a second crime or prove that he committed it and secure a conviction. They just need to prove that there was an intent. The allegation that there was a scheme to violate election laws could have quite a few pitfalls. It's ambiguous whether paying off a mistress was actually a campaign expenditure or a personal one. Some people have pointed to Michael Cohen pleading guilty to campaign violations for his payments to Stormy Daniels, but that case was never actually tried, so there is no actual legal precedent. There's a question of whether federal election law will preempt the state laws. Uh, When there's federal law that conflicts with a state law or when the federal law occupies the field, the federal law always wins. So these state election statutes that might be the second crime Trump is accused of might not even apply here. The New York Times is reporting that the murkiness of the potential elections violations could be the reason that Bragg's office also included language about a state tax crime. But all of the charges in the indictment are related to the hush money payments to Stormy Daniels. Some of those are related to the records of invoices for legal services that Cohen sent to the Trump organization. Other charges were related to the actual checks that were written to Cohen, some of which were signed by Trump himself. And the third type of false entry Trump's accused of making is classifying these payments as legal fees in the organization's accounting records. So there have been a lot of investigations into Donald Trump and his businesses, as we have talked about. There's this investigation out of the Manhattan DA's office. Uh, There's the investigation uh, out of the New York AG's office. There's also the investigation in Fulton County, Georgia, into the allegation that he tried to steal the election and the Justice Department's investigation run by special counsel Jack Smith into Trump's attempts to hold on to power and handling of classified documents after the Mar-a-Lago search and seizure. So compared to the Fulton County and special counsel investigations, this seems like a much less serious crime, not by a mile, but like 10 miles. And, uh, you know, I, I wonder, first of all, I want to get both of your actions. You know, what do you think the consequences are of this being the first indictment of a former president? Again, uh, it's a, it's a historic moment, but personally I'm, you know, I'm kind of, uh, disappointed that this is the thing that, that is happening first. I'm frustrated by it. And I'm also really turned off by the sort of jubilation, uh, that I've been seeing all over cable news and, uh, and social media. Um, but I leave that at your feet. Mike, why don't you lead off? How, what, what was your reaction first here? Well, I was a little jubilant. <laughs> <laughs> I, I noticed. <laughs> I, um, look, in three months, no one's going to remember or care what went first or what happened. And history's not going to remember either. I think there's just been so much anticipation, so much buildup to this day when he was finally going to be held to some sort of account for something at some point in some way in some venue and I don't think that that's just, uh, you know, um, the social media bubble that's out there. It, might, it might be. Um, but what I will say is if you look at some of the polling, which is all I concern, I'm concerned about because it's all I know about. I'm not a lawyer. I, I can't speak to the, the validity or the strength or the weakness of these cases. But what I can, uh, you know, surmise a little bit is, is what kind of damage this is doing to not only the former president, but also to the Republican Party and the party's brand. And I think it's quite extraordinary. I mean, most of the polling suggests that an overwhelming of Americans believe that this is a political move by Alvin Bragg. Uh, But a majority also believe that he should um, be convicted for these crimes and that they're serious. So I I don't see that those are in conflict, by the way. I think that's actually quite judicious, if I can use that term, of the American people who are making an assessment and looking 
um, at what the situation genuinely is and saying, yeah, there, there is – what isn't political in today's uh, you know social environment today? Yeah, there's likely a, a, a political component. That doesn't mean that justice shouldn't be served for whatever it is or whatever it means. Um, but what I'm really, I think, more more um, focused on is the idea, as you mentioned on the intro here to this segment, that this is just the beginning. And again, I, I don't know about the strengths or the weaknesses of the case, but I would much rather have the stronger case come later than first. Um, I, I think that people are just intrigued by the idea that this guy who has skated his entire life away from any accountability at any level is finally having to sit down in front of a judge in a courtroom and having to say he's not guilty to something and having to fight this out in the court of law. I think it's good. I think it's good for uh, democracy. I think it's good for our system of justice. I think it's good for um, people of this country to see that no one is above the law. And if he's innocent, then prove it. And if he gets away with it, then so be it. That's the way it's supposed to work. Um, we've never – this is unprecedented, but we, Donald Trump's an unprecedented person in American history. And we're at where we're at. We're going to have to meet the moment where it's at. And I, I think this is all politically going to be very, very damaging to Trump in a general election. I think it's it works well for him in the primary. And I think perhaps most of all um, – we don't, won't talk about this much, but I think it's most damaging to Ron DeSantis. Yeah, I think we will get to DeSantis in a bit. Anthony – uh, I'm curious about your 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 initial reaction as you saw the news broke. Of course, has now been about a week, um, and and also whether or not you agree that it's a good thing or a bad thing that this was the first thing, uh, first indictment to come down. This is the thing that made history. Um, and uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, no, I, I I agree with you, Ron. I've, I've I'm deeply unsettled by this by the by the sequencing of this, and I and my fear is that this set of this indictment. Uh, potentially undermines or gives gives ammunition to those that would say that the future indictments, which I think are far more serious, um, are are also just part of some some uh, political, baseless political attack. I mean, I think there's real stuff to persecute uh, and prosecute Donald Trump for. But, you know, if you can't pay a little hush money to your porn star mistress in, in this country, what can you do? Right. Um, no, but, 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 in, but in all honesty, like this feels like something that that in in another world, right? That this is the kind of thing you get an FEC fine for, not something you go to prison for. And and my deeper concern, and I think this was my look: the damage of Donald Trump to this country is the damage he inflicted upon our political institutions. You know, I'm an institutionalist. I'm a believer in the institution, and, and my fear is that this sequencing of of the indictments does more damage to the institutions and undermines that faith in our institutions, which is ultimately destabilizing to our democracy. So, so I'm not saying that he should be above the law, right? But I yeah, also, right. but, uh, but I do have concerns with the way in which this is playing out. Would much rather that Georgia go first, but you know, yeah, here we I, are. I, I couldn't, have, I couldn't have put it better. Uh, I think, I think that's exactly where I'm at too. Not a day to celebrate. Yes, no man is above the law, but um, but uh, I was speaking with a, a former DOJ prosecutor who said this seems a bit ticky tack uh, to me. Yeah, uh, and, and 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 that it leads to potentially weaponizing our judiciary in the future. Not and again, uh, I'm not naive. Not that it's never been done before, but it's one of the things I think when we think about American exceptionalism, what what separates us from the way politics works in other parts of the world is that we don't simply, you know 
throw our political opponents into jail or prison. That's we don't do that here right now. It, we also don't try to overthrow the government here. So, so, uh, right. Right. and if, and if that's what we were talking about, right, that would be, then, then I'd, I'd feel much more comfortable having that conversation and that, and that there are, there are crimes that I believe the former president should be made to account for, but, but, you know, but, but this feel, this does feel a little ticky tack to me. Yeah. Yeah. The, and again, the prosecutors are supposed to prove that he's guilty. He's not required to prove his innocence. So, uh, you know, no one is above law. Everybody should be treated equally. I was going to ask you, and of course, we're not lawyers, but there do appear to be some potential big holes in the case. And it's worth thinking about for a second what the consequences could be if Bragg can't secure a conviction. But I think, Mike, to your point, by the time that happens, uh, the zone will be flooded, as it were, with all of the other news about the uh, about the much, much bigger cases. So, History's uh, not going to remember what went first or what didn't. Okay, that's first. The, the second thing is if there was a crime committed and the crimes that we're talking about are fraud, right? It's, it's kind of like Bill Clinton, right? When we all want to remember and, and think about it the way that we were back when Anthony and I first met in 1998 – uh, when I was the political director of the Republican Party, th- he was he. This was about perjury. Okay, the political narrative made it about a tawdry, steamy affair in the Oval Office. The President of the United States committed perjury. Okay, he he just did. Bottom line, and no one should be above the law. I don't care whether it's Bill Clinton or Donald Trump. So while the easy narrative is to say, "Oh, this is about paying hush money to a porn star," which it was, that's not what he's being charged with. Right. Right. Okay. So let's. So so I'm not worried Correct. about the banana republics that that prosecute their public, you know, their political opponents as much as I'm worried about the banana republics that don't prosecute criminals who break the law who are office holders. That's the bigger challenge to democracy. That's the bigger threat to the institutions. That's what I'm worried about now. It's a fair argument to say this is an FEC violation. Most people would get you know a hundred bucks. Uh, a find and their treasurer would pay it and it would be any the wiser. And that's fair. That's a legitimate argument. But if this is fraud, right, th- then I think that we need to mete out justice as long as it takes in the right way and let the punishment fit the crime. He doesn't necessarily need to go to jail. Let a judge, which we do in our judiciary system, use his own judgment to determine what an appropriate punishment is for this crime relative to what was what was committed. But if something wrong was done, why do we allow our politics to determine whether it's serious or not? And I, again, I'm not even talking about Donald Trump right now. I'm talking about Bill Clinton. Like for, for, for everybody here who was listening and saying, oh, this was not a big deal, what Bill Clinton was doing, that are now saying, hang Donald Trump, shame on you. Because the President of the United States committed perjury. He did. Okay? We, we, we all saw it on video. Okay? And we're going to see a very similar prosecution brought against this President of the United States. It's not just going to be Cohen and Weisselberg. It's going to be his own voice and his own writing showing the intent to defraud the system. That's not okay. It's not okay whether you're running for school board or president of the United States, and that's how you protect and preserve institutions by saying this is right, this is wrong, and no one is above the law. And and look, I mean, you you I could you could trip yourself up right trying to think through consistency on this unless you're as consistent as Mike as Mike yeah. is on this stuff. But <laughs> but I mean, but but on the Clinton stuff, I, mean, I also didn't believe that was an impeachable offense, right? And 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 I guess you know to Mike's point, where I'm where I'm getting at is, I guess not all perjury is created equal, which is an uncomfortable place to be, which is Mike's point. But, but I think I, I'm sort of consistent on the other end, Mike, where I, I did think that the Clinton impeachment was an overreach. 
don't think that lying about about uh, about a mistress is an impeachable offense. I think most Americans agreed with that. And similarly, uh, now that it's now that the shoe is on the other foot, so to speak, I'm 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 still uncomfortable with it. So let's hear what Trump uh, had to say in all this. After his arraignment, he spoke to supporters at Mar-a-Lago and helpfully gave a rundown of all the investigations he's facing. Here's what he had to say. The only crime that I have committed is to fearlessly defend our nation from those who seek to destroy it. From the beginning, the Democrats spied on my campaign. Remember that? They attacked me with an onslaught of fraudulent investigations. Russia, 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 Ukraine, Ukraine, Ukraine. Impeachment hoax number one. Impeachment hoax number two. The illegal and unconstitutional raid on Mar-a-Lago right here. With the radical left, George Soros-backed prosecutor Alvin Bragg of New York. Who campaigned on the fact that He would get President Trump. I'm going to get him. I'm going to get him. This is a guy can't pay. And in the wings, they've got a local racist Democrat district attorney in Atlanta who is doing everything in her power to indict me over an absolutely perfect phone call. Nobody said, sir, you shouldn't say that. Many people are wrong. This fake case was brought only to interfere with the upcoming 2024 election. And it should be dropped immediately. Woe is me. Woe is me, Mike. Uh, so we know we we knew where this was going to go. Uh, ever you know all along, we knew what he was going to do with it. Um, uh, some of the some of the uh, you know comments have been well. Obviously, this this unites the base and makes him the nominee. If ever there were in you know, if ever there was a doubt about that happening. So, uh, how effective do you think? Uh, this line of uh, rhetoric is going to be for him uh, as, you know, as one in a series of investigations with his base. Um, he's not even waiting for the other shoes to drop yet. He's just, he's going all in, you know. Well, my first observation is how, how fatigued he sounds. Is He's, he, he's like a boxer, like in the 11th round of a, you know, 13 round fight. He's just, he's, he, this guy's gassed and it's just starting right for him. It, the justice is just starting um, but I, I think it's incredibly effective in the primary. The numbers are showing it. There is a rally around the flag of fact. I mean, he's he's mo- his numbers are moving up into a strong position. DeSantis, as I think I said here on the show a couple of times, his base numbers are, are floating now in the low 20s. All of these undecideds and even some of the, the DeSantis, you know, supporters are moving towards Trump. Now, is this a quick blip or, or not? I don't think it is. I think this is the trajectory we've seen for the past six years. Now, if you look at the broader general electorate, you're seeing Trump's numbers amongst independents really crater. It does, this is not good. This is not good, okay? And I I, I mean, it, look, Anthony and I have seen what a Republican Party can do over the past 20 years in a state like California where it, it's not going to pivot. It's not going to evolve. It's not trying to win. It's going to start getting more intense it's going to turn inward on itself, and it's 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 facing the reality of looking like a regional marginalized faction in American society, dangerous though it may be. 
but it's not concerned about the truth. It's not concerned about viability. It's telling all of the pollsters right now, we don't care about justice. We don't care about truth. We don't care about winning or growing a party in the way we traditionally and rationally think about it. We're interested in this fight. And and they're not going to win the fight, at least through through legal means. <laughs> you know, the, whether they're going to try and steal more elections or not obviously remains to be seen. But this is not good for the Republican Party by any estimation. Um, and it's not good for Donald Trump in the long term, but he's got no 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 alternative. And it's bad for anybody who's speaking out against Donald Trump because they waited too damn long um, to finally, you know, stand up and say, hey, the emperor has no clothes. Yeah. Anthony, there's one other thing that Trump said that doesn't even play well in a in a Fox and Friends focus group. So I want to I want to play this clip and and get your take on it. This is from Wednesday morning. Apparently today, Donald Trump has uh, called for America to defund the police, particularly the FBI, the Department of Justice, uh, because the Democrats have weaponized law enforcement. All right. Who in this panel? Raise your hand. Who thinks that's a good idea? All right, nobody. All right, all right, nobody. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what's he, what's he getting at? <laughs> Donald Trump now wants to defund the police. I thought you guys tried that. Didn't work so well, huh? Well, it's interesting, you know, I mean, some of this, you saw some of this discourse happen after the raid at Mar-a-Lago with the classified documents as well. And you did have people like Kevin McCarthy raising concerns about the FBI. And, and there were hearings on, you know, Called for and and looking looking at the FBI's budget. So there and and so I think that's sort of a Democratic talking point. Like, oh, look who's for defund the police now. I think that shows sort of the um, the continued efforts of the Fox anger machine to try to coalesce around DeSantis and to try to distance themselves from Trump. I think you see that happening actively. And I think sort of my larger concern, putting aside the primary politics, I know you can't do that. But my my larger concern is as somebody who believes that. DeSantis is more dangerous than Trump in some ways, that this somehow within a general election environment, that this creates a lane for DeSantis, that this gives him an, an opportunity in, um, to embrace Trump in a way uh, while running against him, right? To to be able to, to show uh, a, a shared belief that this is a weaponized uh, political attack against him uh, and in a way that that might appeal to more to more independents. And yet, uh, to folks that 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 want to move on, and so, I mean, again, I think not knowing, saying nothing, and knowing nothing about about how this plays in a Republican primary. Uh, my larger concern, looking downfield a little bit, is that this might open up a lane for DeSantis to bring the Trump supporters uh, under his umbrella if he does emerge with a with a nomination. Well, Mike, let's talk about the primary politics a little bit more. So March 20th, you got at some of the polling a little bit, but on March 20th, YouGov, YouGov put out some uh, data showing Trump with an eight-point lead in a head-to-head over DeSantis in a hypothetical Republican primary. This is among registered Republican voters. That lead was up to 15, 16 points against a larger field of opponents, but after news of the indictment broke last week, that lead ballooned to 26 points in a head-to-head, 31 points against a larger field. So... Uh, what do you think the indictment does to Trump in the primary? Um, and obviously, there's a long time before the next scheduled court date in this case. It's it's December 4th, which is two months and a day before the Iowa caucuses. There, you know, there is some pushback about that. They want it to be later in the spring. Trump campaign wants to be later in the spring, which would put it in the middle of the Iowa caucuses. We don't know how that's going to play out yet. But 
but how are you thinking about both the indictment uh, in the Republican primary field vis-a-vis DeSantis and also the timing as this plays out, uh, you know, the optics of this that's going to be very public right in the middle of the primary? I think for those that have been listening to the show for the past few years, this is going to sound like the broken Mike Madrid record. <laughs> but at this point in the race, what we're looking for in the polling is movement. So I've said over and over and over, I want to see movement and in which direction. And I think the fundamentals of this race have always pointed to weak support for Ron DeSantis, not Donald Trump. And this polling shows exactly that. The movement is moving towards Donald Trump, and it's not just that Donald Trump is moving up, but it's that DeSantis's base is really about 20% in the Republican primary. That's really important, folks. That's his base level of support, okay? I don't think it goes much below that. It might, but it, the movement I'm looking for is the consolidation towards Donald Trump. What that tells me is that Trump has has always had more upside than his polling numbers showed. And that's not a secret to anybody who's run a campaign against him or who's been watching this for the past few years. That's exactly what's beginning to happen. DeSantis is in a position where he has to start closing the deal with Republican primary voters. He hasn't even launched his campaign yet, okay? He's trying to, he's trying to compete by throwing out these kind of weird, socially awkward, right-wing, nutty positions to to speak to that segment of the electorate, but you can't out-Trump Donald Trump. That's what the Republicans still have not learned. You also can't, you know, be an alternative to Trump and win in the Republican Party, which is also what the polling has showed us, which is why Donald Trump, barring something unforeseen, wins this primary, even if he wins it in an orange jumpsuit from a jail cell in Georgia, D.C., or New York. I, I that is that, that the likelihood of that happening, I'm even more convinced has gotten greater. And as I've also been saying, the fundamentals of this race are breaking very, very, very strongly towards um, a, a non-republican or a Democrat, right? and and an incumbent. So things, the fundamentals of this race are very, very different than what we saw in 2020, and they're very, very different than what we saw in 2016. So again, I, the, the Republican base is going to consolidate the way that it always has, okay? And it's it, the same way that it did after the 2016 nomination, after Donald Trump gave that weird, awkward speech in 2016 uh, it, it, the, at the Republican National Convention, everybody fell into line. That's what's happening. They're falling into line. There's 20% base level of support. 90% of that is going to come home to Donald Trump when Trump is the nominee. Is it going to be enough? No, it's not. It's not. And I, I, a lot of people may be saying I'm getting way out front and, and predicting way too early. That's a fair criticism. But that's what the fundamentals of this polling are showing me. And I don't think that there's anything that's going to change the trajectory of this race, including, you know, evidence showing that he took a personal phone call from Vladimir Putin and was reading the confidential memos to what the, our nuclear secrets were from Mar-a-Lago. I just I don't see it. I don't think that changes the trajectory of the race. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that's, uh, you've been very consistent on that all along. Um, and and I, I think this incident just demonstrates that. Look, I want to, I want to go back to this, um, the, the polling that was taken. This is, uh, CNN and SSRS, uh, polling on the indictment. Um, now public opinion, obviously not a good barometer for whether charges should be filed. Uh, but, it's important that this poll was done after the news broke that Trump had been indicted, but before the charges had actually been unsealed. So 
94% of respondents had heard at least a little bit about Trump's indictment. 51% said they'd heard a lot. 60% approved with the indictment, 37% strongly approving. Uh, 62% of independents, 32% strongly approving. 21% of Republicans, 21% of conservatives, put that in air quotes. Uh, 93% of Democrats. 76% of uh, people said that politics played a role in the decision to indict Trump, and that includes 76% of independents. Uh, so this, you know, back to your point, Mike, uh, the, the, I want to think about persuadable voters and whether they even matter at this point. Um, what is, what does this look like with college educated white women? What are the indicators you're going to be watching, uh, as the story evolves? Well, look, I mean, the, the, the key voters, there's only really two voter groups that are actually moving in American politics today. One is these college educated voters generally, uh, Republican um, vote, college educated voters more specifically, and, and, and women on top of that. This doesn't play well with them. Um, it, it doesn't. The other voter group, of course, are Latino voters, where I, I don't, I think that that base, that realignment has already occurred. There's a new national base of, of GOP support, and I don't think this changes the dynamics either way of that. The voter group to be looking at is college educated voters and those that are self described independents, of which, Again, this data is saying 72% think this is political, but 60% approve. 62% approve. In fact, independents approve of this more than any other group, I think. Um, now, now, that doesn't mean that that can't move backwards, that that can't change when people start you know, hearing the media narrative about this being about just a, a, you know, hush money to a porn star. That's fair, but you still don't want to start from this position, especially when we know the really compelling case is coming. At least one of them. Then the next two are stronger cases. So there's already an opening for the critical voters that are needed to win an election. They're already saying, yeah, we, we know this dude's a bad guy. Yeah, we, we agree that the indictment should have been brought. Yes, it's political. But as more information comes that's going to be stronger and more compelling, the window on this really starts to close quite early and Again, I, I I just think that the, these voters moved away from the Republicans in 2018. They moved away from President Trump in 2020, and they they basically moved away from the Republicans in 2022. Th this is worse for the Republicans. So this is a, this is a pattern now, and these voters are starting to lock in. If this is the fourth election cycle in a row where they move away from the Republicans, um, and I think it will be. I think this is this is in many ways a, a realignment in and of itself that just shows that the Republican Party has a hard floor and a hard ceiling, and it's going to start devolving into a regional factionalized group in American society, American politics. And and to that point, I mean, look, I mean, you should don't look at what happened in New York this week. Look at what happened in Wisconsin, right? I mean, the, the Supreme Court race in Wisconsin, I think, shows yep. abortion is is. Um, a volatile issue. It's a bad issue nationally for Republicans, and it is driving, and and it is becoming a, a, a one. There are one issue voters emerging, and this is leading the exodus. Happy Passover, everyone! The exodus away uh, to uh, away from the Republican Party, from largely from uh, suburban women, uh, and and that I think is 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 very worrisome to Republicans nationally. Yeah. Spe speaking of Democratic victories, I have a question for you, Anthony. I'd love to you speak to this. But after the news of the indictment broke, Jesse Waters uh, on Fox had had Missouri Senator Josh Hawley on his show. I want to play a clip of the question he asked 
Uh, and then, and then I want to, I want to put this to you. Well, you as a senator have to take a stand and your colleagues have to take a stand. The American people don't want to see a bunch of speeches about how troublesome this is and how historically significant this is. No, there has to be something else that you guys do. I don't know what that is. It's got to be some sort of show, some sort of resistance, some sort of action, because there has to be a line that they can't cross. And you have to show them somehow that this is just an unacceptable act. And you're a leader in this country, and the American voters expect that. Are you guys ready to show something? So going back to your point about McCarthy and, and you know, rhetoric about investigating the FBI, et cetera, I'm, we, we, know, we know how frothy the right is going to get over this. That kind of goes without saying. My question is, how would you like to see Democrats handle themselves through all of this? What is, what is really trauma for the country, right? This is a very difficult thing for the country to go through, no matter what, right? How should Democrats be talking about and, uh, and, 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 and generally um, messaging Trump's indictment, or should they just not talk about it at all? I mean, you know, personally, I mean, I think, look, the, the safe place to be is to let, let uh, the, the process play out. Let's see what's happening to Mike's point. Just because he's indicted on all these things doesn't mean he's convicted. Just because he's convicted doesn't mean he should go to prison, right? Let that play out, and let's focus on the issues. I think Democrats are in a place now they have they have a wedge issue that works. Um, they have a couple of issues that work to their benefit, and you know I think there is a there is a majority, a national majority that wants to move on from Trump in one way or another. And so to to focus on uh, as that is playing out, right? Focus on the issues where Democrats uh, can appeal to these new voters, continue to to bring uh, these voters under their tent as as we realign, right? We as Mike alluded to, we we've seen. This sort of shift where, um, you know, black and brown men, especially, uh, there's sort of are, some are moving to the Republican Party. Um, that's being they're being replaced in the in that Democratic coalition by largely suburban women and more college educated voters. I think Democrats should be hammering the issues where that will help build their electoral majorities for 2024 and beyond. Last real quick question, but I'm really curious what you make of the Chicago mayor's race. Uh, Given that you know all the, the the consensus was basically Lori Lightfoot's outed, uh, you know, ousted on the basis of crime, and yet they went with the more progressive candidate on crime in in the Chicago's Chicago mayor's race. What do you make of that race? I don't know. I mean, we saw the same thing kind of happen in Los Angeles, right? I mean, it's not. Yeah, it's not. I don't. I'm not surprised by it. I think it's just kind of sort of the trend line of where um, you know it was close. We should say. Yeah, yeah. And I, 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 I don't know. That, I don't know that there's too much to be made of that. I just think that this is kind of the overall voting patterns of where the bluest precincts in the country are going. It, it's not. I wouldn't even. Know, I don't know where crime was testing as as an issue. I mean, we all have a narrative outside of Chicago as you know this this unruly wild place. And that may be the case. I, I don't know. But what I do know is if I'm looking at the urban core of most major metropolitan cities, they're moving in that direction. So this is not surprising to me at all. Yeah. And, and I think you saw some of this sort of narrative try to form in California, right? A couple of years or last year uh, with the recall of Chesa Boudin in San Francisco. And then they had, and folks were looking to that LA mayor's race as a, as a second domino, right? And this was going to become the Republican narrative on crime. I think this is sort of another uh, kind of uh, 
disruptor or obstacle to that to that hard narrative forming and and that um, you know. I, I will say this though. Um, I think crime and the economy are no longer playing as issues the way they once were. And I do believe that we have now been largely consumed by this culture war and this general values direction of, of where American society is heading. And I think that that's what politics has largely become. I don't know if that's because we've given up as Americans on believing government can solve economic problems or, or, or keep us safe anymore, or whether it's just there's a bigger existential threat to to our own values system, and that's going to be the battle that's going to determine how we fix these other things. But I, I do believe that that is really driving. We saw this with the Dobbs decision, right? So all, all the traditional pollsters were looking at the economic data and saying, Joe Biden's toast. His own people were coming out, you know, he's running against MAGA Republicans, and people were saying, what, what's he doing? I was a big advocate of saying he's doing the right thing because the right constituencies were responding to that. And this is another example of that is, is in, a, in, in, a, in a world where people may not be doing well economically and where they may view that crime is an emergent issue doesn't mean that they're going to necessarily go for the tough on crime candidate or for a Republican candidate the way they did in 1993 electing Rudy Giuliani and Richard Reardon as mayors of New York and Los Angeles. Like that's just not the world we live in anymore. In fact, the urban core again is moving further and further to the left. All right, let's move on to cyber warfare. Mike, I picked this story just for you because we, we, we've been talking about this so much, but this story just my eyes popped out because it was uh, it was so much of of what we've been talking about for the last couple of years. Actually, remind me of our trip to Ukraine. So on Tuesday, uh, Britain's National Cyber Force published a report called "Responsible Cyber Power in Practice," and it outlined how the agency uses the purpose and principles of quote-unquote, offensive cyber. So the commander of the NCF, James Babbage, gave his first interview also on Tuesday. The organization actually only revealed his identity this week. The NCF was founded in 2020. Babbage has spent nearly three decades at GCHQ, which is, uh, for our listeners, Britain's signals intelligence agency. It's uh, kind of like our NSA. One of the real key pieces of this report is the shift from looking at offensive cyber as a red button to what they call the doctrine of cognitive effect. And as this economist piece uh, put it, the idea that offensive cyber is less about turning the lights off in Moscow than a stealthy and subtle form of psychological warfare. In essence, the NCF hacks computers and networks. And in today's world, that can mean everything from your phone to a fighter jet. But the ultimate goal is influencing the behaviors of people or groups, whether criminals, terrorists, or state adversaries. And they can do it by disabling a server or app that terrorists are using to communicate, but they usually take a much more subtle approach. The cyber command at Pentagon, for example, uh, sent a message to Russian hackers in 2018, dissuading them from interfering in the midterm elections. But Babbage told The Economist that more often, the goal is to stay in the shadows. He said, The intent is sometimes that adversaries do not realize that the effects they are experiencing are the result of a cyber operation. They want to tinker with an enemy's network over time, what they call tilting the playing field imperceptibly. Like in Ocean's 8, when they uh, move the security (laughs) camera a degree at a time over several weeks, right, to create a blind spot without anybody noticing. Uh, so, So Babbage said Britain 
used this tactic to disrupt the Islamic State's communications and make them distrust orders being sent in 2016 and 2017. The Economist also noted that NCF is emphasizing that it's a responsible cyber power. I put that in air quotes. <laughs> That's reassuring. They say their operators are targeted, calibrated to avoid escalation and accountable to parliament. Babbage contrasted the NCF with Russia's psychological operations. Uh, Russia most often attempts the operations at population scale, while the NCF is targeting decision makers or small groups. Uh, uh, <laughs> Britain's still working through what this will actually mean in practice. They're uh, still adjusting the shift from thinking of cyber as a tactical uh, tool, like taking out a particular radar at a key moment, to looking at the theater level. Uh, I put that in quotes too. Influencing enemy generals in their headquarters rather than colonels in the field. So, um, Mike, I I can't wait to hear what you have to say about this because it's it's it is literally exactly uh, what we have been talking about yeah. for a couple of years. Anthony, I want you to go first here since maybe I don't know if you and Mike have shared conversations about this, but um, the the new domain of warfare is the information landscape, and we're now seeing Great Britain's. Uh, spies say, yeah, this is how we're, this is how we go about it. This is an incredibly useful tool. How do you think about that? Well, I think about this sort of coming from my perspective as a communications professional, right? And there's this sort of moving toward each other, right? Of this kind of whatever, uh, you know, cyber warfare slash security and communications. And, and it's increasingly harder to see where one ends and the other begins. I mean, look, these concerns that, that we're talking about in a national security context are the same concerns being raised over TikTok or over Twitter, you know, uh, some, something as powerful. These are powerful, powerful tools, the most powerful propaganda tools we have seen in, you know, in the, in the history of the world. And I don't think we understand how they're going to impact. Not it's not just not just militaries. It's not not just you know as you say like whether uh, the ability to keep the lights on because of some you know piece of code. I'm going to show my ignorance here on this stuff very quickly about the way I'm talking about it. But some piece of code that's going to turn off a power station or whatever. But really, but how um, I I think getting tying back to the sort of the Trump stuff. I think what what is so destabilizing to our institutions is, is this sort of, um, the way in which people get their information, the way they internalize that information, the, um, and the impact that that has on human behavior. It's a huge, it's a huge, huge challenge, uh, for, for all of us. And, and, um, you know, and so I come at this from the perspective of, uh, how do you communicate in this environment in a way, uh, you know, as an effective communicator, but also as, as somebody, as a concerned citizen, right? How do you, how do you uh, guard against it? And as a parent raising children, how do you teach a new generation how to decipher uh, information when it when it can be imperceptible? It can be a measure of degrees. It's it's uh, it's uh, it's. I think it's the challenge of our times in many ways. Yeah, Mike. Uh, since Anthony mentioned TikTok, and we've talked about this, we <laughs> talked about it. I think a couple of weeks ago. Yes. I mean, I, I, it's perfect segue, and I, I like. I want to build on. I want to build on this, but. I think that one of the biggest misunderstandings about the you, the White House's posture toward TikTok, the U.S. national security concerns vis-a-vis -vis TikTok, is that people say, oh, I don't really care about my data. But it's not really about your data. It is about your data. But what it's really about 
is the ability through algorithms to manipulate public opinion, yeah, to absolutely. amplify divisive content, to to shape uh, what happens in minds across the country. It's not just about, oh, well, they have my data. So what people say, so what? Everybody's got my data. It's, it's about much, much bigger uh, problems than that. And so I want to layer on the TikTok problem, but in general, what did this, what did this piece make you think about? Well, the first thing to remember is that even though you may not be paranoid, doesn't mean they're not out to get you. <laughs> the second, <Right>. the second <laughs> thing, the second thing, and again, well the, the Ukraine part is fascinating because Ukraine is unique at this moment, precisely because there is a kinetic war in a war that has already begun. It's a relic of the last century's type of warfare, which is what makes it so fascinating. This war has been going on for the better part of a decade in, in, a, in a hot war. You know, look, this has been going on. Countries have been screwing with each other's countries. And by the way, the United States is probably the number one, you know, uh, entity that is messing around in the, in the global space. And we have been for many, many decades. But look, this came to fruition. People started to realize how significant the problem was, the average American citizen in 2016, when the Russians were involved in our elections. That is an act of war. Okay, that is an act of war. And to think that this stopped or that it only happens during election time is foolhardy. It's part of a consistent long-term strategy. And it's not just the Russians. It's not just the Iranians. It's the Chinese. And it's basically every other entity with any level of sophistication, including, again, the United States, who has been involved in these operations for many, many, many years. And the uniqueness of The Economist article is not that they're saying it publicly, but the truth of the matter is, I mean, this is what was outlined was very elementary. This is not new. This is this is finally acknowledging stuff that is kind of old. And so when we talk about the Russians owning platforms like TikTok, again, you're right. It's not just about the data, which is frightening enough. It is that they own the largest media platform in our country. Fox News can't hold the candle to TikTok. It just can't. And once they start subtly Look, you're not going to just see Chairman Mao suddenly on TikTok saying you are, you know, join the Communist Party. That's not the way it works. They're going to start feeding in anti-American sentiment or they'll use that data to start uh, exacerbating race relations or partisan uh, 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 distinctions or anti-vaccine uh, messaging. Anything that causes disruption in a free, open society like ours has this incredible vulnerability. That's what Putin was doing. That's what he was trying to weaken those hinges so that when he invaded Ukraine, the West could not consolidate and come together. He, he underestimated the, the strength of our societies, but he also did extraordinary damage. If you don't think so, look at, look at the earlier segments we were talking about on, on this show today. Like this, we're in trouble. Democracy is in trouble. And it's largely because technology has allowed us to find these weak points and begin very sophisticated data-driven communications strategies where our enemies now own some of the most significant platforms to communicate with us at any time in not only U.S. history, but in world history. That's There are no borders. There are no borders. There's, these aren't necessarily even going to be state actors soon. So when people talk right. about going to war with China, folks, we're at war with China. It's a different looking <laughs> yeah. war, but it's a digital war. It's a cyber war. It's an information war. And it's going to take place on the battlefield of social media and currency attacks. And it's not necessarily going to be shutting down power plants, though that may be part of it. 
But by the time this gets to actual kinetic warfare, by the time this actually gets to jets and planes and tanks, the war's already over. That's the way you need to look at it, is we are engaged in this effort now. And the best way to, again, think about this and whether think about whether or not you've been boiling you know, like a frog in, 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 in hot water here and how hot the temperature is, look at the right-wing media ecosystem. That's not organic. This was built by design. It begins with bloggers. It moves up to small, regional, peculiar news outfits. Then it bubbles up to the OANs of the world and the smaller markets. Then it goes to the conspiracy YouTube channels. And then suddenly it pops up on Fox News by the time the audience has already been preconditioned in their bubble to believe things like the election was stolen when they know it didn't happen or, or vaccines are, or don't work. Or, or that, you know, the, the Antifa was behind the January 6th event. Like, that's why people believe this stuff is not because they were just thrown one ad at it. It's because they are following a trail of bad, false information in a sophisticated format to move them into a direction where what their understanding is quantifiably, clearly not even true, but it's not even based in reality and that's how people get radicalized, by the way. You're wondering how a bunch of Saudi Arabians were convinced to fly jets into the Twin Towers. Ask yourself how it was that a mob of American citizens were convinced to go overthrow the government on January 6th. It was the exact same process. Anthony, any other thoughts? Uh, no, I mean, I think to Mike's point, again, it's like, you know, this has been going on a long time, right? But it's just that the the tools themselves have changed so much and become so, yeah. so much more effective, right? I mean, 60, 70 years ago, it was it was radio-free Europe, right? As as right. that was the way we were going right. to help bring the wall down. Yeah. Uh, and now, and now, I mean, it, it is, uh, you know, we don't have a full understanding of those, you know, the psychological warfare that's able to to uh, to be waged on these new platforms. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.